Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's podcast, we take a look at Canada's wealth management landscape and how it continues to evolve and change. Carlos Cardone, Senior Managing Director at Investor Economics, leads the discussion today as he highlights the ongoing high interest rate environment, how that affects household financial wealth, and where Canadians are choosing to invest their money. Carlos also highlights how saving dynamics have shifted among Canadians and how Canada's high net worth trends compare to global trends. Please note, Carlos shared some slides during the live webcast to financial advisors. This podcast was recorded on November 29th, 2023. Give us a sense, lay the landscape for us, if you will, on what the retail financial world in Canada is worth yeah. at this point. So after a very tough uh, 2022, as you all know, uh, markets haven't been um, uh, in, in our side, on our side uh, in terms of uh, valuations and that, we started, we're starting to see uh, wealth actually grow um, uh, from $6.2 trillion in assets that were recorded at the end of 2022. Uh, we are now seeing uh, closer to mid-2023. We're still finalizing the metrics, but it looks closer to six and a half uh, plus. Wow. Uh, trillion dollars, so almost three hundred billion dollars coming into the market, mostly as the uh, effect of valuations, higher valuations on fixed income, higher valuations on equities. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, in the context of the household balance sheet report, one of our main reports that we produce every two years, where we forecast uh, the markets and the uh, the financial household, uh, the financial assets of Canadian households, and the growth and flows for the future. We anticipate that growth will remain positive over the next uh, decade, but certainly we don't expect the kind of growth that we had over the previous 10 years. And of course, part of that is connected to market effect and the fact that flows uh, are also coming uh, at lower levels, but the byproduct of inflation, the, uh, the higher cost of servicing debt, all of that, of course, is having an effect also on flows. Uh, the demographics of wealth show that about half of these assets are owned by um, retirees or households that are very, very close to retirement. So this we're is starting the demographic, to see yeah, yeah. the demographics. Of course, we're starting to see the, the, the down pressure on assets from the payout phase, right? There's income being so, drawn. So let me dig into that just a little bit, the payout phase, because we're talking a lot in sort of the macro discussions about how the, the pile of savings that, that, that most people, the consumers, were able to save through the pandemic years has been eaten away, it's slowly being ground down. But we're talking about actually the payout from those that are now have been saving their whole life for retirement and are actually going into those savings. Yeah. Two different buckets, two different reasons. And, and this is going to do what, ultimately? Well, the net new amount of money available to come into investments is uh, at coming at lower levels than um, uh, that was the case in, uh, in, in the previous years. The uh, net amount of money going into deposits and investment funds, which are very large categories accounting for 75% of wealth or so, so deposits investment fund flows in the first half of each one of these years. 
the, uh, the years of the pandemic, 2020, 2021, we had extraordinary amounts of savings. So this is coming from a high level. When we're looking at 2020, we're up in high levels and coming Very down high. to more normal levels? Well, or? 2022 was probably at $75 billion or so, was probably more normal. In a, in a regular year, and probably we haven't had a regular year in quite some time, right? right? But in a regular year, you would expect maybe 140, 150 billion dollars coming into the market in terms of new savings. Remember, this is net new money. So you have savings and, of course, money that's being used and expanded um, as a part, of course, as we mentioned, the payout phase and, uh, and, uh, and other uses of, uh, of that money. 2022, um, still fairly fairly positive overall at 75 million, uh, but look at 2023, right? Yes, In the first half of the year, it's only $26 billion. That is, of course, the effect of inflation, the effect of the higher cost of saving, uh, of paying down debt, that's uh, uh, having a, a great effect on, uh, on that. And there's also a very interesting effect in terms of who uh, is generating these savings. Where are these savings coming from, right? You have, um, uh, of course, the squeeze is happening mainly at the bottom of the income scale. And households in what we usually call the mid or mass market are the ones that are generating very little savings or, or in some cases drawing out of their assets to uh, pay day-to-day -day expenses. And um, uh, this, of course, has the effect that more of these savings are concentrated on high net worth households mm -hmm. on the high end of the marketplace. It's it's fascinating. You can see sort of the the economic problems with that. But I, I actually wanted to ask you how Canada, knowing that, stacks up globally in terms of having you know a percentage of their population that is a high net worth that that are doing these types of investments or are in the position to be doing this. How does Canada look? In, in, in terms of high net worth households, uh, right now, approximately seven, seven and a half percent of all households um, have at least a million dollars in uh, financial assets and financial investments. Um, it's relatively high compared to other jurisdictions. We know, for example, in the U.S., wealth is more concentrated, but it's, uh, it's, it's more concentrated by virtue of the fact that there's more billionaires in the, um, uh, in the U.S. than uh, there is in Canada. So you have uh, a lot more of that uh, concentration on the top. In Canada, the number of households in the million plus has been increasing substantially in uh, the last several years. The, uh, uh, the current um, um, uh, numbers of, uh, of households in, um, uh, in the high net worth and the expectations for, uh, for the future. Any, again, regular year, we would expect maybe some 20, 25,000 households joining that segment of the million plus. During the pandemic alone, in two years, we had more than 120,000 households joining that segment. Very significant. And this is one of the reasons why more distributors, more advisors from the bank branches, financial advisors, well, full-service brokerages that were already there, of course, and many other distributors are all kind of refocusing their operations on this segment, right? And trying to bring pricing and um, uh, uh, products and segmenting the clientele in ways that, of course, allow advisors and the, the distributors in general to keep uh, the business from these households, right? Because they're very, very important in the context of the total books of business of advisors in different channels, right? A sub-segmentation 
uh, of uh, the high net worth uh, segment, uh, the, the, the household with wealth between one to about five, three to five million, uh, it really depends on the, on the dealer, on you know, what's in their books and how they segment the clients. Um, that is something that is a segment that the industry is starting to call the mass millionaires. Hmm. And there are you know, different strategies, of course, shaping on, uh, on that. But again, from bank branches to financial advisors, ideas about discretionary managed assets that are already taking shape. More of that, of course, coming our way in, uh, in coming years. We're looking for, uh, we're seeing, uh, continue to see um, uh, 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 ideas coming from distributors to target that segment and to create the conditions for those households to stay. That's very, very important. The retention of the high net worth is a very, very important topic in distribution these days. I mean, would you say it's the biggest topic? Probably one of the biggest. Yes, yeah. I would say because, the, again, the, the importance of keeping them around uh, uh, in the context of their, their relative size in advisor books is very, very important, right? Losing these households uh, to other organizations, to competitors, and, uh, and all of that is certainly uh, threatening to the business of, uh, of organizations, yes. It's fascinating. Do do you see uh, a number or enough um, people entering the business of, of becoming financial advisors uh, out of university, building building their own books? That's an interesting discussion, and you know, certainly things are changing in different distribution channels. We are starting to see, for example, in what we call the financial advisor channel, which is the world of uh, mutual fund dealers and some uh, dually licensed securities uh, uh, dealers, not full service brokerages, but security licensed uh, 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 planners. Um, we are seeing that there's an influx of uh, uh, advisors um, that, that are becoming employees of the, uh, of the dealers. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a new format. Uh, many companies uh, are not necessarily onboarding rookie advisors at the time, at the, at the rate that they were doing so um, many, many years ago. The labor market has a lot to do with that, sure. right? We are in a relatively yeah, a tight labor market. Mm -hmm. It's a very different um, uh, labor market overall. But I think, you know, the, the, the advice channels in general are dealing, of course, with uh, the onboarding of new advisors, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, certainly uh, an issue at some organizations in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only option uh, is not only one option that they have in terms of onboarding only advisors in a single business format. I, I think there are, you know, the, the, yeah. the industry is evolving, the channels are evolving, the business is evolving in ways that certainly adapt to the marketplace. Yeah. Right? There, if there, it's, a, it's a wonderful career for many of people, course. Though, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, different types of asset classes themselves, um, yes. whether whether offerings of funds of funds versus a balanced approach versus a more singular focus on fixed income, for instance. What's working right so now? So we are seeing a very, very significant strong rotation of assets. There's a, a very significant reallocation taking shape. It's not new. It's been happening for some time. But now, of course, that uh, it seems at least that interest rates uh, are stabilizing, right? That the expectation of interest rate increases are you know, not necessarily there. If anything, there's an expectation that interest rates could be lower at some point in the second half of right. Right. Here and all that—that that is again, you know, changing the environment, but very much in favor of asset owners, right? So, if you own fixed income equities during the last few weeks, you have actually seen valuations coming up, uh, and this is, of course, triggering a new wave of uh, reallocations. 
that was already happening. Again, it's not necessarily new. The total industry net flows that, as you can see, are actually negative. That's the total level of net flows for the industry. Add up the, the numbers in fixed income, for example, you have $17 billion or so coming into fixed income funds. Then you have an equivalent amount of money going to money market. You have cover call funds. You have alternatives. You have ESG. You have several categories that are attracting money. And we're starting to see also, and this is kind of a newer effect, a little bit of traction, uh, which is of course expected in dividend paying type of mandates, right? With these kind of interest rates and everything, we're starting to see that these type of uh, investments are also uh, starting to trend. So depending where you are, where you position yourself in terms of, you know, reallocations and uh, and flows, there are certainly uh, certain asset managers and certain companies that are seeing money coming their way, even in this environment where the total net flow is not particularly uh, large, right? It's, if anything, is, uh, is, is negative. Some of these opportunities in terms of uh, assets, um, uh, you know, uh, alternatives, CSG and other categories are more connected to advisors than to self-directed investors, right? The one that, of course, is very connected to self-directed investors are the ETFs of ETFs, the asset allocators sure. of uh, ETFs, more self-directed investors in online brokerage embracing these type of products. But in many cases, you see that the, the bulk of what's trading um, trending, rather, I should say, in terms of asset reallocation is happening really with advisors at the helm. Yes. Advisors at the helm. Very interesting. And are there opportunities? You said alts, I mean, sort of the hedge hedge fund type, long short, yeah. or it's, it's a whole area that's developing. Area. Yeah, we, we've seen activity in uh, alternatives uh, uh, overall, cutting across uh, hedge, as you mentioned. Um, uh, 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 yield, of course, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the private debt, the private credit type of uh, products had attracted uh, money at some point. And there's also a bit of a substitution effect happening with uh, liquid alternatives. Okay. We're seeing some money out of offering memorandum type of funds, in some cases going towards equivalent, you know, and you have to say equivalent in quotes because, you know, sometimes you cannot exactly do in a liquid alt what you will do in an offering memorandum type of fund. But Sometimes, you know, in equivalent mandates, you see some progression towards liquid alternatives. It seems that advisors are incorporating some of these products in their own allocation models, right? Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, constantly rebalancing with uh, other um, uh, asset classes and uh, and so on. So advisors seem to be kind of warming up also to alternatives to to some extent. That's yes. really interesting. It's sort of, a, as you say, there's an evolution there yes. on the ESG investment flows. Let's talk broadly about it, but I also want to ask you know, in Canada, where, where, where do you find this has had the most tremendous pickup? But because uh, it's not always the same story in each country. Yes. Yes. It's uh, Canada is uh, now, you know, we we kind of started with the, U with the U.S. almost in the same place in terms okay. of ESG developments, say about three or four years ago, just before the pandemic. You know, there were few funds in, in both countries uh, on these strategies. During the pandemic, we started to see activity, more products becoming available more attention coming from pretty much every angle, from the press, from, from the public in general, more talk about uh, ESG. But of course, in the US, uh, I think you're uh, all aware of the kind of backlash that we've seen against the category uh, overall. But in Canada, we continue to see adoption. Actually, um, uh, ESG, as you can see, in, with, uh, if I remember correctly, five and a half or so billion dollars in, uh, in net flows uh, year to date, 
is uh, one of the bright spots uh, in, in, in this context in which you know, flows have been uh, uh, strongly negative. Uh, pretty much all fund sponsors, banks, independent companies like Fidelity and others, life insurance companies, ETF companies, everybody has in their shelf for the most part ESG type of uh, investments. And we're seeing that slowly but surely, some advisors are incorporating these products in their practice. Uh, in, in most cases, we're finding that advisors uh, find some uh, client segments that might be uh, more uh, likely to, uh, to be open to use these, uh, these type of funds and, uh, and so on. Um, some advisors might not be necessarily net promoters of ESG. They might not openly promote the category, but they will respond, of course, when clients show interest mm -hmm. in that type of uh, investment. So in that case, I think you have Canada and the US kind of going now different uh, paths in terms of uh, ESG adoption and ESG investment in general. Okay. Yeah. Just because there's interest, is that the idea? Yeah. yeah. You, you see that the interest ha is happening there. Yeah. Really interesting. Okay, let's go to passive and active ETF. You say this is sort of gaining ground everywhere. Um, let's talk about both. Love to get into the active ETF because that's sort of what we're talking about here. Of course, yeah. yes. But tell us about across the board. Yeah, ETF first. You know, ETFs across the board. Uh, if you look at everything funds, yeah. ETFs is that product category that continues to see positive flows. Good markets, bad markets, you continue to see usually money going towards ETFs. And this is the byproduct of the fact that more advisors are incorporating ETFs in their practice. More of these ETFs are being wrapped in uh, existing products. More self-directed investors replacing, in many cases, direct securities, uh, direct equities, direct uh, bond holdings with uh, ETFs. Okay. Um, so at the top, if you want, you know, money is certainly going towards ETFs. Uh, look at the um, importance of active managed uh, ETFs in that, uh, in that context. Now, something important about active in the context of ETFs. Active ETFs doesn't necessarily mean the same as active mutual funds. Okay. Usually in terms of active ETFs, you have a range of activation. Mm -hmm. You could have products that, are, uh, that have index components, but an active asset allocation, products with only a, a certain type of asset uh, of activation that makes it um, uh, almost automated in terms of how the activation happens and all of that. So there's a, a degree of activation here to take into account, but it's a very Canadian phenomenon. If you look mm, at other it. markets, it is. Yes, if you look at the US, if you look at Europe, you will see some action in uh, active uh, ETF products, but certainly this type of um, uh, traction, this level of shares of active flows um, uh, for ETFs, that's very, very Canadian. Part of that is connected to ESG to some extent, as you can see also. And then, of course, another factor that always has to do with um, uh, the traction behind these categories is that pricing has been adapting to the use cases for ETFs, right? Particularly on the active side, right? The type of active um, uh, products that we see coming to the market have a price point that usually reflects the level of activation in the product. Right. And this is something that advisors, and in many cases, of course, also self-directed investors have actually embraced. What, what trending structure of mutual funds do, do wealthy investors use? Is it pool funds? Do we see trust fund, corporate funds? Give us a... Yes, that's a, that's a tricky question because, you know, when you think about wealthy investors, you, in Canada at least, you're usually talking about someone who managed to accumulate wealth 
generally over a long period of time, a lifetime yeah. of uh, accumulation, right? So in that context, you might find, of course, um, uh, investments that seemed a little bit more vanilla, more mass market kind of uh, uh, approach. And you will see, of, of course, many products that are um, uh, expressly targeting this type of high net worth uh, investors. Uh, certainly, uh, ETFs are part of the mix. Uh, pooled funds could be part of the mix depending on the distribution channel. Asset allocation solutions are an important part of, uh, of that, right? In, in, in many cases, we continue to see that uh, relatively large portfolios, uh, even into you know, that, that bucket of the mass millionaires that we showed before, uh, certainly have some um, allocations to uh, asset locators and, uh, and, and beyond. So you continue to see that you know, high net worth, for the most part, cuts across the product continuum mm -hmm. uh, in terms of product types and also in terms of asset classes, right? You usually see allocations uh, across uh, multiple asset classes. And of course, uh, uh, high net worth investors uh, having more assets and you know maybe good part of their income needs met by these uh, assets tend to have usually a little bit more exposure to equities in many cases, right? Even okay. in older age, you continue to see that. In some cases, these are legacy allocations, right? That might have been done many, many years before. And now, could have significant tax consequences if they were kind of cashed out and uh, and that right. So for various reasons, you usually tend to see um, a, a kind of a heavy weight of equity allocations Isn't in high net worth portfolios. Yeah. So what trends are are you seeing? Are you incorporating in your research on fees? Fees, for the most part, we continue to see a, a future of attrition in terms of uh, fees overall. The attrition on fees is happening in, in multiple ways. On, on one side, you have asset managers uh, ongoing, uh, an ongoing process over the years, uh, lowering fees in different mandates. Usually scale is a, is a big enabler right. of uh, 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 fees, uh, fee changes, fee drops uh, over time, right? You tend to see that, you know, usually when the markets start to grow and sustained that growth uh, at a certain level, at a higher level than before, you tend to see asset managers actually making concessions in terms of uh, fee uh, decline. So that's kind of a, you know, this is about if you want the fees that are embedded in the products. Then of course you see, as shown by the, uh, the data on ETFs, you see allocations in many cases shifting towards lower price type of products, right? Uh, ETFs that could be passive or active, uh, uh, certainly uh, one of the main categories trending on um, uh, on that, but also in some cases, of course, advisors, you know, particularly for larger clients, moving into uh, SMAs or other products that certainly come also with um, uh, with lower fees in, in in most cases, right? So the fee uh, drop equation, you know, it, it has uh, kind of multiple legs, right? It's something sure. that happens in in different ways. Well, yeah. I wonder if that that fits into this next discussion, the the unbundled. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and this is something that we've spoken about before. Yeah. Uh, wh where are we in it? It, it continues. Yes, and, and this is yeah. certainly, certainly very, very connected to uh, the issue of fees and sure. particularly uh, the advice uh, fees in that case uh, connected to, uh, to these portfolios. We continue to see unbundling that in this case means uh, essentially fee-based uh, type of accounts, which could be discretionary or not. And uh, what we see, of course, in, in most cases is that there's a schedule of uh, fees connected to asset levels. 
and of course the larger the assets the, the lower the fees and everything and this is you know, in the context of our forecast for the household balance sheet this is the fastest growing segment in the entire balance sheet across all channels hmm. uh, discretionary okay. in full service brokerage in private council we are going to start to see discretionary type of approaches probably not of the same kind that you see in full service brokerage coming to bank branches possibly over the next uh, few years um, the financial advisor channel uh, SMAs potentially of products and, and other type of investments uh, addressing this issue of the unbundling and keeping on one side the product itself with its own fees and everything and on the other side of course the fees connected to the advisor and uh, the dealer uh, type of services and bundling is even coming into the uh, self-directed space we're now seeing in the online discount brokerages even model portfolio locations and other developments that are actually allowing um, uh, these platforms to move towards uh, almost automated allocations in many cases rebalance allocations and we're going to see developments there connected to um, uh, automated rebalance for a fee and uh, and all of that. So very very interesting. Also developments coming into that uh, self-directed platform too. What what are you talking in terms of assets uh, to be considered high net worth? But where's the line? That's uh, that's an interesting question. In most cases, we find that I mean the, the line uh, uh, is uh, is that really the decision of the advisor and dealer, right? Okay. It really depends the type of dealer and view. what's in the books and how they view how they how they could potentially segment their own clientele, right? If you don't have clients uh, with more than $5 million uh, in assets, for example, you don't need a threshold there, right? So, uh, but we, we tend to see that $1 million uh, in investable assets is a very, very common threshold. Uh, in some distribution channels that have traditionally focused on high net worth investors, of course, that threshold is much, much higher and they start to treat differently, usually households with more than five million dollars in some cases we're hearing more than seven eight million dollars closer to ten mm-hmm. right that's very very common and in some dealers focus primarily on a mass mid-market type of households uh, sometimes dealers are starting to talk about high net worth at about seven seven fifty and this is just a, i mean maybe this is an obvious question but this is what those individuals or, or households are worth including for instance the worth of their house no, it's just what they're just putting. Just financial assets. Just financial assets. Yes, only investable so assets in the portfolios, yeah. in the portfolios, and uh, in the books of business of the advisor. It's not the collateral. It's, it's just what you're else. pouring into the funds. Yes, yes, yeah. net money invested in those portfolios. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you to everyone for all of their questions. And Carlos Cardone, we're always riveted by all of the research you bring to us. Thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.